Section 8 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brant Burgess, Laurel Springs, North Carolina. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter 7. When Gerald Desmond, surprised by the Arabs, was tumbled overboard, he happily managed to get his head clear of the cloth which had been thrown round it, and, striking out, he endeavored to keep himself afloat, though he had little hopes of saving his life. Though the night was dark, he made out two or three objects floating near him. "'Who's there?' he shouted out. "'Is that you?' asked a voice, which he knew to be that of Archie Gordon. Help me, Gerald, to get this thing off my head, or I shall be drowned. Where are we? What has happened? A few strokes brought Gerald up to his messmate, and he quickly tore off the cloth which the Arabs had bound round his head. Praise heaven that you've escaped, young gentleman, exclaimed another person, who proved to be Jerry Bird. We've a long swim before us, but we must try to keep afloat somehow. While these remarks were being made, the dow was gliding rapidly away, leaving them astern. "'I'm afraid it's more than mortals can do to swim all that distance,' said Desmond. "'But hello! What's that? A huge fish coming to seize us?' "'No, sir!' cried Jerry Bird. "'It's the canoe! Someone has cut her adrift, and we've a better chance for our lives than I thought for.' While they were speaking, a fourth head was seen. Jerry hailed, and found that it was that of the man who had been at the helm. Urging him to keep up his spirits, the midshipman and Jerry swam towards the canoe. It was no easy matter to get in without capsizing her, but they managed it, Desmond climbing over the bow and Jerry holding on to the stern. As soon as the two were in, Archie followed Desmond, and then Jerry himself got in. Their first impulse was to go to the assistance of the man who was swimming some little way off, but what was their disappointment on feeling about for the paddles to discover that none were on board? They managed, however, with their hands to work up to the poor fellow, who, being a bad swimmer, was almost exhausted and on the point of sinking. Jerry caught him by the collar just as he was going down and sang out to him to catch hold of the stern but the difficulty was to get him in without the greatest possible risk of filling or capsizing the canoe, her gunwale being almost flush with the water. "'You must manage, Sam, to get in of yourself,' said Jerry at length. "'I'll go more forward. But take your time about it. There's nothing to gain by being in a hurry and all to lose.' Sam Potts, having recovered his presence of mind, did as he was advised, and, the rest nicely trimming the canoe, he was enabled to crawl in directly over the stern, though not without causing a considerable amount of water to flow in over the gunwale. The midshipmen with their caps, and the two men with their hands, quickly bailed it out, but so low was the canoe with their weight that it was very evident, should any sea get up, that they would run a great risk of being swamped. In vain they looked out for the other men, but no sign of them could they discover. They hailed on the chance of their having been thrown overboard when the Dow had got more ahead, but no reply came to their shouts. They must either have been kept on board or sunk immediately. 
Their own situation was, however, too precarious to allow them to trouble themselves much about the fate of their companions. Without food or water, or the means of propelling their canoe, they might too probably, even if not drowned, die of hunger and thirst. Still, they had reason to be thankful that the canoe had been cast adrift at that very moment, and that they had been enabled to get on board her. The circumstance appeared providential, and why should they, therefore, fancy that they were to be allowed to perish? The sea remained calm, and a downpour of rain gave them a sufficient amount of fresh water, which they caught in their hats and caps to quench their thirst. They dared not move, so Sam Potts remained aft, Jerry amidships, Desmond next to him, and Archie forward, all of them sitting with their legs stretched out at the bottom of the canoe. The rain made them feel somewhat cold, notwithstanding that after some time Desmond went off to sleep to finish the snooze so fatally indulged in while trying to keep his watch on the deck of the dow. Before long, Archie followed his example, as did Sam Potts, leaving Jerry alone awake. Thus the night passed away. The two midshipmen were both awoke at the same moment by finding the rays of the sun shining in their eyes. "'Where are we?' exclaimed Desmond. "'Faith, I fancied that I was away snug at home at Ballymacree, and little did I think that I was floating about in a canoe out in the Mozambique Channel. "'We may be very thankful that we are not at the bottom of said channel,' remarked Archie. "'Faith, you may say that, my boy,' said Desmond. "'Small thanks to the rascally Arabs that we are not there.' I only hope another of those slaving dows won't come by and run us down. They're not likely to treat us with much courtesy if they guess what has happened. If a dow does come by, we must try to board her and take her, exclaimed Jerry Bird. But we've got no arms, said Archie. How are we to manage without them? Take them from the rascals, to be sure, if they show fight, said Jerry. As to running us down, we'll show them that they've made a mistake if they attempt it. If a dow comes near us, we must make the canoe fast alongside, jump on board altogether, seize the arms of the fellows nearest us, and then lay about us with right good will till we've driven the crew below or overboard. Although Jerry's plan seemed a somewhat desperate one, its discussion served to keep up the spirits of the party, who entered into it cordially and all agreed that it should be attempted, should they have the opportunity. The sun now rose and beat down on their heads with fearful force, while around them the calm sea shone like burnished gold. Their hunger increased, while already they began to feel the want of water. The midshipmen suffered most. "'I say, Archie, I'm getting mighty ravenous,' whispered Desmond. I shall be turned into a living skeleton pretty soon, with no more flesh on my bones than some of the unfortunate slaves. I've taken in a couple of reefs in my belt, and somewhat stopped the gnawing I was feeling just now, answered Archie. You'd better do the same. Faith, I should be after cutting myself in two, said Desmond, before I could stop this abominable biting in my inside. Still, the two midshipmen kept up their spirits, and talked away in a cheerful strain, in spite of the heat and their consequently increasing thirst. The sea continued calm, and the wind so light that it would be long before a dhow or any other vessel could reach them. 
As their thirst increased, their inclination to converse lessened, and at length they and the two men continued, often for half an hour together, without uttering a word. "'I wonder what's become of Harry and Bill,' said Sam Potts. "'I've been thinking of them. Maybe they're worse off than we are.' "'Too likely,' said Jerry. "'The slaver's crew wouldn't have left them alive to bear evidence that we were hove overboard. So depend upon it. If they didn't send them after us, they knocked them on the head or cut their throats whenever they found them. Bad as we are off, they, poor fellows, are much worse. We may be thankful, Sam, that we are where we are. This isn't the first time that I've been in a boat out in mid-ocean without a drop of water and with nothing to eat except maybe a flying fish and a brace of noddies we caught and a dead bird we picked up till we came across a whale floating and fed on the blubber for a week or more, though we had to hold our noses as we put it into our mouths, till we were at length picked up. So you see, bad off as we may be, we've no business to give way to despair. Help will come from one side or the other. These remarks contributed to keep up the spirits of all the party, which had naturally begun to flag. As the day advanced, the heat became greater and greater. They did what they could to keep themselves cool. They wetted their shirts and their clothes, but they very speedily became dry again. The evening of another day was approaching. Nearly four and twenty hours had passed since they had taken any food, and not a biscuit had anyone by chance in his pocket. At length, after rummaging in his pocket for some time, Sam Potts drew out a black-looking lump of about the size of the end joint of his thumb. Hurrah! he exclaimed. Here's a treasure. Jerry, ask the young gentlemen if they'd like to have a chaw. I suppose they won't take it amiss, seeing we're all in the same boat. The midshipman thanked Sam, but declined his offer, feeling that it was more likely to increase their thirst than to lessen it. Jerry, however, expressed his gratitude to his mate who generously gave him half his precious quid, which he immediately stuffed into his cheek. "'Ah, this is something like!' he exclaimed. "'Bless my heart, it's like meat and drink. Them as never was out at sea in an open boat without as much food as would cover a sixpence, they shouldn't cry out and abuse us poor fellows for taking a chaw or enjoying a blow of backy when we've a chance.' "'You're right, mate,' said Sam. I'd have given my last golden guinea for a quid, and I believe it will help to keep our bodies and souls together better nor anything else we was likely to find out here. The midshipman, who had heard Jerry's remarks about noddies and flying fish, kept looking out in the hopes that they might get hold of some denizens of the sea or air. Though occasionally the fin of a shark appeared above the surface, or some huge monster was seen gamboling in the distance, no living thing, however, came near to enable them to satisfy their craving hunger. Thus the day passed away, and night once more threw her sable mantle over the ocean. The sky was clear. Archie thought it was his duty to try and sit up and keep watch, but it was more than he could do, and in a short time both he and Desmond dropped off into a sound slumber. Hour after hour they continued in a half-waking, half-sleeping state, their strength decreasing for want of food, and even when awake, their minds wandering in a strange fashion, 
from which they were only aroused when Jerry or Sam spoke to them. Their case was becoming, they could not help feeling, serious indeed, and they were conscious that, should relief not arrive, they must, ere many hours were passed over their heads, succumb to hunger and thirst. The night seemed interminable, and they could only pray that the daylight might bring them assistance. Towards morning, they were somewhat aroused by feeling the canoe tossed about far more than she had hitherto done. And while every now and then the top of a sea washed over her gunwale, just sufficiently to show them that they had a new danger to apprehend. By this time, however, they felt almost indifferent to anything that might happen. They were, at length, aroused to action. It won't do, sirs, to let the canoe get swamped. We must turn to and try to get the water out of her as fast as it comes in, cried Jerry. Of course, answered Archie, throwing off the torpor which oppressed him. We'll do our best. Gerald said the same, and at once they began bailing away. They were thus employed, managing to keep the canoe pretty clear of water, when dawn again broke. A sail! A sail! cried Jerry, as he was casting his eyes round the horizon, from which the shades of night were gradually rising. She's coming up before the wind, but I'm much afraid that she's one of those slaving craft after all. Still, though her crew may be errant cutthroats, they can't do us much harm, seeing we're bad enough off at present. All the party now kept their eyes fixed on the approaching sail. On she came, steering apparently directly for them. As she drew nearer, she was seen to be a large dow, and there could be little doubt, a slaver. She was within a mile of them, when, just in her wake, rising above the horizon, appeared the loftier sails of a square-rigged vessel, also approaching directly before the wind. The crew of the Dow had in all probability seen her and were endeavoring to escape. By the cut of her canvas, exclaimed Jerry, after watching for some moments, she's an English man-of-war. Sam was of the same opinion. The two midshipmen hoped they were right. The question, however, was how the Dow would treat them. They were certainly less anxious than they had been before to get on board her. Would her crew, from mere revenge on recognizing the midshipmen's uniforms, give them her stem? If she did, they must do their best to scramble on board. But then, with their strength so diminished, they would scarcely be able to clamber up, much less to fight, as Jerry had proposed. A few minutes more must settle the question. As the ship was standing directly after the Dow, they might, at all events, be picked up by her, and they, therefore, earnestly hoped that the latter might pass without observing them, or, if she did, without molesting them. On she came. "'She's steering somewhat wide of us, sir,' exclaimed Jerry, "'and I don't think we've been seen as yet.' What the arrows might have done had they not been chased, it was difficult to say. The canoe was apparently not discovered till the dow was within a few cables' length of her. The dow would have had to deviate slightly from her course to run down the canoe. As it was, she passed scarcely twenty fathoms off, her dark-skinned crew casting savage looks at the Englishman. While the dow was gliding by, the two midshipmen and their companions sat up watching her. "'They've made out who we are, sir,' cried Jerry, "'and the villains—' 
if they're not pointing their matchlocks at us. Lie flat down, and we shall have a better chance of escaping. Scarcely had he spoken than several shots came flying by the canoe, one close over her. But happily, as Jerry's advice had been followed, no one was hit, and the dow, impelled by the fresh breeze, went rapidly ahead, leaving the canoe far astern before the slavers could fire another volley. "'You errant scoundrels!' shouted Jerry. "'We'll pay you off one of these days!' After this excitement, the whole party would have sunk back into their former state of apathy, had not the approaching vessel given them matter to keep them aroused. Her topsails were now above the horizon, and soon her courses appeared, by which time, however, the sails of the swift dow had already begun to disappear on the other side. Indeed, it was evident that she was gaining rapidly on her pursuer, which would have very little chance of catching her. "'That craft is an English brig of war,' exclaimed Jerry at length. "'Though she hasn't a chance of catching the slaver, she'll see us, I've a hope, and before long we shall have some grub and water on board.' "'There's no chance, I trust, of their passing us?' said Archie. "'No fear of that, sir,' replied Jerry. "'They keep too bright a lookout on board. "'Depend on it. "'They've made us out before now.' "'The wind was again failing, "'and should it become calm, "'the brig might not come up before dark. "'Still, if the canoe, as Jerry supposed, "'was already seen, "'of course a lookout would be kept for her. "'For half an hour or more,' Hopes and fears alternately predominated. "'They've made us out. No fear on that score,' cried Jerry. "'I saw the people on the forecastle waving to us.' As he spoke, the brig shortened sail. A boat was lowered, and ere a minute had passed, she sheered alongside the canoe. A midshipman and warrant officer, with four hands, were in her. "'Bear a hand. Lift the poor fellows on board carefully. Sharp about it,' cried the former." We must not lose a moment. They seem very far gone. Desmond and Archie were placed in the stern sheets, while even Jerry and Sam could not, without the help of others, manage to crawl into the boat. The canoe was dropped astern while the boat pulled back to the brig, the whole maneuver being properly executed, occupying but a very few minutes. The midshipman, attending simply to the work in hand, had not looked at the countenances of the people he had rescued. Just, however, as the boat had hooked on, he cast his eyes at the face of one of his companions, and then at the other. "'Why, Gunner!' he exclaimed. "'I do believe that they are Gerald Desmond and Archie Gordon!' "'You're right, Tom,' cried Gerald, who was not so far gone as to be unable to speak. "'And mighty glad I am to see you!' Only, as you love us, get us some grub, or we shall be after hopping the twig. No fear about that, young gentleman, said Dick Needham, who was the warrant officer in the boat. We'll have you on board in a quarter less no time, and under care of the doctor. He'll soon bring you round, though you mustn't be eating too much at first. The midshipmen and their companions were speedily hoisted on board. When Tom Rogers announced to the commander who they were, and the condition in which he had found them, Broth and other restoratives being quickly prepared and duly administered, in a very short time they were able to use their tongues sufficiently to give an account of themselves. "'Well, I'm glad we fell in with you,' cried Tom. "'And so is my brother Jack. If not for your sake, 
on account of his old shipmates, Murray and Adair. They would have been precious sorry to lose you, and so should I. And now we've fallen in with each other. We shall have the chance of some good fun together, for the brig is to be employed, during the remainder of her commission, in slave hunting. My brother Jack is only acting commander of the romp, but he's sure to be confirmed before long. He got no end of credit in the work we've been engaged in up the Irrawaddy, of which I'll tell you by and by. I often wished that you fellows were with us. It beat all the service we saw out in South America. And Archie and I have often, of late, said how we long to have you with us, Tom, answered Desmond. Not that we've had the same sort of fun we enjoyed in our first cruise. It has been much rougher work, on the whole, and I haven't fallen in with any Irish cousins, or the lots of nice girls we met in the West Indies, but, after all, the life we lead when boat cruising is as much to my taste as anything I can fancy. Tom, of course, replied that he hoped to have some of it, and that he should try to get his brother to send him away on an expedition. Though but a short time had been lost in picking up the canoe, it was sufficient to allow the Dow to run out of sight. Jack, who was bound for Zanzibar, of course had now to bring up off Mafamali, for the sake of landing Archie and Gerald, and to set Adair's anxiety about them at rest. He was very glad also of the opportunity he should thus obtain of seeing his old shipmates. The two midshipmen, though still somewhat weak, had greatly recovered by the time the island was sighted. Scarcely had the romp dropped her anchor than Adair came on board. His surprise on seeing Jack was almost as great as his satisfaction at finding the midshipman and the two other men safe and sound. Jack had some time before heard of the death of Kathleen. The recollection of her threw a shade of melancholy over the meeting of the two friends, but after a short time he managed to cast it off and talked away eagerly of their past adventures and future prospects. "'I am glad to find, Jack, that you are so certain of your promotion,' said Adair. "'I wish that I could think the same of my own prospects. Lord Derrynane will do the best he can for me, but when he paid his last visit at the Admiralty, the First Lord told him that, though I was a remarkably promising young officer, he had so many promising young officers deserving of promotion that he should fill the service with commanders if he was to attend to the request of all his friends. I can only hope for the chance of doing something which must compel their lordships to promote me. I hope you may, Terence, with all my heart, exclaimed Jack, and if not, we must get Admiral Triton to advocate your cause. I shouldn't feel comfortable getting my step unless you, who deserve it quite as much, obtained yours also. As soon as Adair returned on shore, he found that Joss Green and the rest of the party had been arranging to invite the commander and officers of the romp to a banquet on the island, and a note, couched in the usual formal style, was immediately dispatched, a favorable answer being returned. "'But as to provender, what have we got, Green?' asked Adair. "'Some of it isn't yet caught, to be sure,' answered Green." But we've sent the men out with the seine, and we shall have an ample supply, though there may be no great variety. Shortly before the dinner time arrived, a sail was seen standing up from the southward, and was soon pronounced to be the corvette. The proposed banquet was therefore postponed till her arrival, 
an additional haul of the seine was made and a further supply of fish secured. The breeze was fresh, and, as she was sailing under all sail, the opal soon came to an anchor, and Murray and his officers at once accepted the invitation sent off to them. He had naturally become very anxious at discovering no traces of the midshipmen, and was proportionately thankful when he found that they were safe. Thus the three old shipmates, after an absence of upwards of two years, once again met. At the appointed hour, the invited guests from the two men of war arrived on shore. Josh Green had undertaken to superintend the arrangements. All hands who could be spared from their culinary duties, rigged out in their cleanest, were marshaled to serve as a guard of honor. He had formed also a band, and though regular musical instruments were scarce, he had with much ingenuity contrived half a dozen drums made out of empty meat tins, the same number of horns formed of conch shells, and a similar number of fifes and flutes, which had previously been manufactured on the island during the leisure hours of some of the men who took delight in harmonious sounds. Murray and Jack, as they walked up from the landing place, laughed heartily at the preparations for their reception. Though the music was open to criticism, the banquet surpassed their expectations. Their seats were three-legged stools, but the table was bountifully spread. At one end was a huge bowl of pea soup, at the other a similar one of fish. At the sides were several varieties of fried fish and boiled fish, roast and boiled fowls obtained from a dow, a legal trader which had been overhauled, salt junk, of course, was not wanting with preserved vegetables, and a liberal supply of yams, while bottles of beer, porter, and rum constituted the chief beverages. Lastly, too, plum puddings, somewhat resembling those stone-shot used by the Turks in days of yore, were placed before the carvers, and were pronounced excellent as to composition, but were declared to possess rather more consistency than was absolutely requisite. Indeed, few of the guests, with the exception of the midshipmen, made any great inroads on them. The viands being removed, songs were sung, and healths drunk, the most important of the latter being the success of Britain's arms by sea and land, a speedy end to the slave trade, and health and prosperity to the queen and all the royal family. Dinner being over, races were run, leapfrog indulged in, games of rounders played on a grand scale, and hits made such as only sailors could accomplish, and a variety of other sports which the nature of the ground in circumstances would allow. Business, however, had to be attended to. Adair had left four men on board the Dow, and two only besides the midshipmen had been recovered. There could be no doubt, therefore, that two had been murdered, as would have been the case with the whole party had not the canoe so providentially got adrift at the right moment. It was suspected that the old chief, Mustafa Longchops, had instigated the crime, and though he and the Arabs had been sent to their account, his people, who had so grossly insulted the British officers, were not to be allowed to escape unpunished. The corvette and brig, therefore, early the next morning, accompanied by the boats, proceeded off to the village where they brought up. The sea being tolerably calm, and there being no surf, as they neared the shore, 
six boats were at once manned and sent in to inflict condign punishment on the heads of the transgressors. The party, headed by Rogers and Adams, formed on the beach. Their arrival had been observed by the natives, who, with tom-toms beating and horns sounding, were drawn up in large numbers on the side of the hill to defend their village. Jack gave the order to advance. The natives stood for a few seconds. Then, even before a single shot had been fired, they turned tail and scampered off as fast as their legs could carry them. The only volley fired brought a few down and hastened the flight of the rest, who were out of sight before the village was reached. Not a human being was found in any of the huts, which were speedily set on fire and burned to the ground, while a grove of trees growing near was cut down. A far more severe punishment than the burning of the miserable huts, which could be easily restored. This necessary, though unsatisfactory, work being accomplished, the party returned on board, and the corvette and brig, having received the captured slaves, made sail for Zanzibar. End of Section 8 Recording by Brant Burgess, Laurel Springs, North Carolina